Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast. Well, uh, Jeff and Sean, thank you guys for hopping on with me and uh, and agreeing to to do this, have this conversation. I've been looking forward to this one. You guys know I'm um, being the startup guy. I like the business topics and I like talking numbers because we don't, you know, especially as you're when you're a solo doc, you don't get to talk and share numbers and talk about the business side of dentistry as much as sometimes I'd like to. So um, always look forward when we get to do these these uh, business podcasts and talk numbers and retirement. Um, and uh, I know we've got a lot of really good content lined up today. So uh, Jeff and Sean, thank you guys for hopping back on and uh, taking a little time out to talk retirement planning with me tonight. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, this is Sean. Great to be here Jeff. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and Sean, you were just on the podcast recently. Um, listeners can go back and kind of check that one out. We, um, talked about a range of like insurance topics and really broke down different insurances that a pediatric dentist might need. So, um, listeners might be a little bit more familiar with your background, but Jeff, I've, uh, I've got you on the podcast for the first time. And, uh, if you don't mind, maybe take a, take a hot second and kind of update the listeners on, on, I guess, um, your role at Tree Lauren Heisel and kind of your responsibilities and what kind of things that you, you sort of specialize in. Sure. I, I joined Tree Lore in uh, 1986, actually. So I'm one of the old timers here. I like to say I'm the second longest tenured employee here, but I'm not the oldest necessarily. So, <laughs> but uh, I, I spent uh, uh, my first 10 years of my career with Tree Lore. I actually went to the West Coast and was working on the insurance side of our operations, opened our office out there, came back to the Midwest. I'm a Pittsburgh guy where we're located, came back with my family took territory over. And over that time period, one of the things I found was our clients, uh, you know, obviously make great money, didn't always make great money decisions, got a lot of bad advice. And over that time period, I got my certified financial planner, my chartered financial consultant. Uh, My dad was an accountant, so I had finance kind of beaten into me as a child, I guess you can say. So I kind of grew up with uh, you know, being taught how to manage money. And uh, about 20 years ago, we started uh, Trailer and Heisel Wealth Management, the financial services end of uh, Trailer and Heisel. We specialize in financial planning, uh, uh, investments, and retirement plan management. Oh, fantastic. Um, and so that's, we got enough to talk about. I'm not going to mess around. I'm just going to jump right in because uh, I want to make sure we pack a lot into this episode here. But um, you know, the topic and the theme of today is retirement plans for, um, for a pediatric dental office, which a lot of listeners own practices or startups or, um, are kind of interested in getting that going. And I think maybe even more so with our, my generation and these younger pediatric dentists, there's a lot of influence from TikTok and social media and these short form videos about, you know, um, the fire movement and, and financial independence. And, uh, you know, everybody's got these hacks and cheats to like put money away and save on taxes and retire early. So I think there's a little bit of a movement to be kind of aware of, of 401k, 401ks and retirement plans in general. So, um, maybe let's start big picture here. If you would, um, maybe break down, because, you know, I want to jump in and start saying, okay, set up a 401k for me, but we almost have to take a step back, right? Because it's not like, you know, sure. 401k is a very umbrella term that can include different things. And so can you just start from a big picture standpoint for me and break down the different types of retirement accounts and plans that a pediatric dentist might think about implementing and then which ones seem to be the most common? Sure. So if you look at it, you can always break retirement plans down into two categories. There's personal plans, which are going to be your IRAs and your Roths, right? Uh, Roths has some limitations on income, Everybody can contribute to an IRA. It's whether you can deduct it or not. You know, that's, that's sort of your starting point before you're a business owner, maybe. Once you're owning your practice, uh, there's essentially three core, what we call defined contribution plans. There's a fourth type. It's called a defined benefit plan, which we can talk about much later. But your three key plans are a set plan, a simple plan, and then the 401k. And the 401k really kind of is the workhorse of, um, of retirement plans. So a set plan is is a plan that you can put 25% of your compensation into a maximum, a certain maximum amount, $61,000 this year. Uh, You have to contribute for staff with any of these uh, plans that are sponsored by your practice. You have to make a staff contribution, right? 
with a SEP, first of all, you have to contribute to anybody that's worked uh, two out of the last five years. And they have to have made a certain amount of money. I think it's $600, but anybody who made like 600 becomes eligible. So you can't be real exclusionary with it. And they also get a contribution uh, in the same proportion that you get. So if you're a doc, let's say, and you're making, uh, let's just say you W-2, $300,000 to make it simple, and you give yourself the $61,000, you are getting somewhere in the range of, you know, 20-some percent of your income, yay. You have to give staff 20% then as well. So that's very expensive. And if you look, if you have a number of staff people, you're going to look at what you have to give them, compare it to the tax savings, you're, you're end up on the backside of it. You're giving the staff more than you're generating in tax savings. So we see a SEP plan used primarily by like independent contractors. And, uh, you know, if you're, you're an independent contractor, it's a great because it's very low cost to set up. There's no administration required. Uh, uh, you can do it through a brokerage firm, an advisor, and you're not, you don't have to pay a third party to do the calculations. So it's, it's real simple. Uh, one thing, I'm going to make one mention on set plans too, because this is sometimes we do run into situations where we've seen accountants give poor advice on this. The rule that says you only have to provide contributions for employees that have worked two out of the last five years. We've seen some people start a practice and say, hey, I can do a SEP and I can exclude those employees because they haven't worked three years yet. Well, here's the rub. You're an employee too. You're an employee under the Department of Labor rules. So if you exclude them, you can't make that contribution. Uh, where a SEP would work is maybe you independent contract for a couple of years. You have an entity set up like an LLC or an S-Corp, and then you know, three years later, you decide you're going to open a practice and use the same EIN number. Well, guess what? You've been an employee of that for three years. You could do a SEP for three years, just cover yourself and exclude the employees. But you have to be really careful. Uh, uh, we've had we've actually had to bring an ERISA attorney who's an attorney that specializes in Department of Labor, retirement law, and uh, to kind of explain to a couple of accountants we run into that said, oh, you can do it and, and you can't. But uh, again, SEP works great for an independent contractor, not so much for a practice, okay? A simple plan is like a poor person's 401k, I guess you can say. Uh, you can make a contribution, a, a deferral of salary. So when I use the term salary deferral, that's the amount of money you take out of your pocket and put in. It's not what the practice gives you. So your staff can contribute out of their payroll. You contribute out of your payroll, maximum $13,500. There is a catch-up if you're age 50 or older. And then the practice gives you one of two contributions, 3% of your, I'm sorry, uh, uh, a match up to 3% or a straight 2% of compensation for everybody. Uh, you, the problem is you, you cap at a low amount. You know, you can't really max it out a lot. Uh, they're kind of strange beasts because you have to set an account up for every single employee. So it's, it, they're technically, and this is the same with a SEP, they're technically IRA contracts endorsed for businesses. So they're kind of cumbersome to manage. And uh, again, you can't max it out. And, uh, you, you know, it, we see them sometimes in smaller practices that, maybe aren't generating a lot of revenue, but for, you know, pediatric dental practices which tend to be, you know, much, much more, uh, much higher level of producing. Typically, they're not really used all that much. Okay. So that leaves us with the 401k. And again, that's kind of the workhorse in the, in the standard that uh, you end up with because it allows you to do a deferral, you get a match, and then you can do what's called profit sharing to get it all maxed out. Okay. Yeah, if I can, real quick, you know, um, the goal when we talk to Pietro Dennis, you know, you want to provide a staff benefit, but you also want to make sure that you can put as much money away as possible, right, in a tax-advantaged way, but you don't want the, the contributions to your staff to exceed your tax benefit, right. usually. So what Jeff just said, you know, the SEP um, can be very expensive in contributions. The simple, you might not be able to go to the the full amount that you could put away in a, in a 401k. So the 401k puts you in a position that it could 
squeeze down some of those responsibilities uh, to your staff and contributions, but still gives you the ability to go all the way up to that 60,000 plus total savings mark if you have the cash flows to do it, do right. so. Yeah. So, you know, that's why people talk 401k so much. It's, it's, it's a, a few more steps to set up, but it typically is that sweet spot. And I would say, one thing we did talk about is, you know, often we get the question, I just started a practice, when do I do it? We're very much advocates of you investing in your practice and getting the cash flow up first, right? The best investment you can make is in your practice. Once you get to the point that you are, you're profitable and you're gaining, gaining steam and you have this cash flow and you're like, what's the best way to save it in a tax advantage uh, manner? That's the first step we're going to look at once the practice is up and running is installing a retirement plan, right? So then we make the decision. We got to do a study to see which plan is best for you. And we got to look at your cash flow to see if you can actually do the full 60,000. Because if you're doing that in a retirement plan, you're losing what? After taxes, your cash flow gets reduced by probably 40 grand, 35, 40 grand mm -hmm. that you're not receiving personally because you put it away. Does that make sense? So we want to just really establish the cash flow. And then we talk about um, installing and which type. And like Jeff said, then the 401k typically when you look at all those different variables, becomes the most popular option. Yeah, and just to kind of piggyback on what Sean said here, uh, you know, the first question is, should you do the retirement plan, really? And, and that, I mean, there's two reasons to do it. The primary reason historically has been that you can do a plan, create tax savings, and again, you're, if your tax savings exceed the contributions you have to give the staff, then it's in your advantage to do it. If it doesn't, you would be better off paying the tax personally and investing on your own. Not only that, but money accumulated in the retirement plan, excluding any Roth options, which we can talk about later, yeah. it grows tax deferred, but it does get taxed at ordinary income when you draw it out. You have to start taking it out. So somebody who's in a situation where it costs them a lot more for the staff than it would be for tax savings are, is probably better off doing a general investment that you can then draw out at capital gains tax yeah. uh, later in retirement. So that's the first question that we'll, you know, we look at with that. And I would say there's a spectrum, right? Um, it might be a situation, we're going to go through the different components that maybe they can't, you, you as the owner won't do the full $60,000 right. because it's too costly, but it still makes sense to have a retirement plan because you can do a portion of it. Um, so we should probably get into that a little bit and talk about the components and how it all works. Yeah. And I just let me just finish with this one point, though, too. You know, it's again, typically most of our clients are like, I want to do it for myself. Right. I'm not, you know, staff sometimes doesn't value it. I, I, in the last few years, that's changed uh, more and more. Let's face it. You all know that staffing has become just a total problem. Uh, and uh, I think more and more of our clients are looking at it as an employee benefit. And they say, I want my staff to have it. And I do want to make sure that uh, they understand the value of it. That's, you know, we talk about this as part of what a good advisor does is work with the staff to help them understand how it benefits them. So, uh, you know, why should you do it? Tax reasons for you and as a benefit for employee retention, obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so when so we get into the 401k. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to, you know, since we're kind of our topic right now is like, when is the right time to set up a 401k? Um, just sort of, I'm just inputting a little personal experience here. So I just finished year two of my startup being open. Um, right towards the end of year one, I hit, I was really profitable and we grew really fast and it just happened to have a lot of leftover money. And so like to your guys's point, we, I, I reinvested some of it in the practice, got our cash flow and our profitability really right. high. But then I had leftover money and and my CP and I, CPA and I worked together and said, okay, this makes sense to do a little bit earlier than a lot of practices. Um, but one thing that was kind of nice, like a hidden value that you might be able to speak to was, um, you know, what my... I have my um, 401k and profit sharing, and then I also continue to uh, put money in an after-tax brokerage account, like through your brokerage, Schwab, Vanguard, right. which that works fine. So I've got money in 401k and money in just a brokerage account. Well, there's a hidden benefit to having that money in a 401k because it seems like it's managed differently and you there's just psychological and financial penalties to, I guess, taking it out <laughs> early where you're not going to touch it. Whereas my yeah. after-tax brokerage account, I meant like, you know, it's growing and- not this year because the market's getting hammered, but I'm like, man, I, 
that's for retirement, but then I like, I could take it out and spend it on a pool or I could do something. Whereas there's like some <laughs> non-monetary benefits almost to having a separate like 401k plan that you really can't easily pull out and that somebody else is keeping an eye on that you can't do something stupid with, like invest it all in like a cryptocurrency or something, you know? So there's some, maybe besides like tax benefits, there's almost other benefits to having that in place too, that I'm kind of figuring it out, uh, figuring out. Yeah, you know what? There is a human behavior benefit without a doubt, because number one, you only get one crack a year to make your contribution, right? You miss it this year, you can't go back retroactively and make it. So it does create somewhat a sense of forced savings. You know, you know you're going to do that. And uh, uh, so I, I like that benefit. In fact, even if, I, if I'm talking to a prospect and we look and then we say, you know, it's kind of a wash if the taxes help you or not sort of break even, I'd say do it for that simple reason right there is you know this will get funded. And then you know what? It's also a protected asset in a lawsuit, which yes. is important to you all too, right? Mm -hmm. you know, so as opposed to your, your taxable account, that even if it's in a trust, it's exposed to a malpractice claim. So a 401k is you know, very, very, very tightly uh, protected uh, under law in all states. So a uh, big advantage of doing it from uh, it, it'll, get, it'll get done. You know, and that's true even if you're doing like a backdoor Roth conversion or something like that. It seems like you know you have to do it because if you don't, you lose it. So you do it. And, and by the way, you, as you were talking about, you know, as your practice grows, you know, what you did is, is pretty common right there. You know, the first couple of years, you're building your cash flow, reinvesting the practice like Sean mentioned. The other element of this is your depreciation write-off. You may have a year that you've got, you know, the cash flow is really going, but you've got some carryover. So we kind of work with the accountants as well and say, you know, when when you need to do it for a tax reason as well, maybe that second year you've got good cash flow, you know, or, or someone does, but there's so much depreciation left that you don't necessarily need to do it. You can take mm -hmm. that cash, maybe do something more impactful personally, emergency fund or something like that, you know, make sure that gets built. And then the next year you do the um, uh, uh, 401k. Uh, at that point. So it re really needs to be kind of integrated into your financial plan in, in your progress you're making. Yeah, man, that's a really, really good point that I hadn't thought about. But yeah, if your tax bill is pretty minimal that first year with all the depreciation, there's no sense and not necessarily no sense, but it's something to at least do a little bit of math on there. Uh, and Jeff, I didn't mean to, um, yeah, sure. I forgot. We, um, we forgot to kind of define this because if uh, Sean actually taught me about this in a, I don't know if Sean's going to remember this, but he did a virtual webinar or something a few years ago at, uh, it was like an AAPD, um, you know, basics of financial planning webinar. I mean, it was years sure. ago, Sean, but uh, I remember the slide. You had a blue slide. This is my little photographic brain going back because I, I was learning a lot about this. <laughs> slide and it said define contribution plan and a defined benefit plan and then you had all the categories underneath um and and this was just something i didn't know at the time that i thought would be important to distinguish where it, there's so much terminology that gets easy to get mixed up and now i have a good understanding of th this is what a defined contribution plan is and this is what a defined benefit plan is and defined contribution plan has 401k and other things all under that umbrella category but could you clarify that for people that aren't familiar with with the breakdown of those two sure yeah defined contribution plan would be your seps your 401k simple plans essentially what the irs does is they define what the maximum contribution is, irrespective of your age or anything. There are you know, some maybe limitations to how much you can put in per income, but once you hit that cap, you cannot put any more in no matter how much you make. Um, a defined benefit plan is a pension basically that you're funding for. So what you're looking and saying at age 65, I or whatever age of retirement is defined in that plan, I am funding for a certain uh, annual payout, kind of like the pension you'd have at Ford, you know, your grandparents had at Ford back in the day. So you're creating the funding stream to create that income stream. And that has to be calculated based on a participant's age and number of years to retirement and an assumed interest rate. So the, you're defining the benefit payout under that case. And uh, there is an opportunity in the dental practice to have a uh, defined benefit plan typically overrides a 401k, but that's something you do a little bit later when you're a little bit older. 
I mean, we could talk a little more about that in a bit. Yeah. It's a great plan. We use them a lot. I mean, they are, they're, they're like the, you know, the big home run hitter for the retirement plans, yeah. you know. To clarify, the, <laughs> I know Jeff said override. I think what we mean is you can put it on top. On top. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. it goes in tandem. It, it goes in tandem. It, it, it goes yeah. in tandem. Yeah. So. But I always find it, you know, pretty simple. The defined contribution tells me what I can contribute this year. Yep. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. The yeah. Benefit, you put it. You're creating a future benefit. Yeah, so future benefit. They, do a calcul- they reverse engineer a calculation yep. to tell you how much you can save this year to create that future benefit. Um, you always do, almost always, you, you're going to do the defined contribution first yep. because of the way uh, contributions work to your staff and how it works from a tax perspective. Um, and it's less expensive to run. But once you are fully maxing that out and, and you're, you're doing things like you said, Hey, I'm, I'm investing in my broker, my investment account, a taxable account. Maybe I'm doing backdoor Roths. Um, and I just have more cash than I want to reduce my taxable income. Man, placing a defined benefit plan on top, we can really sock a lot of money away. Yeah. Uh, if it works from a, actually, you know, an actuary comes in, part of the third-party administrator services, and calculates all the, the, the benefits that you have to do for yourself and your staff. But it can be pretty darn juicy. Mm-hmm. You know, so... So that's something that we definitely would, would talk about once the cash flow really starts to take off and you're saying, I'm getting killed with taxes. Can I at least look at my options to put more money away in a tax advantage uh, way? Right. Okay. And we can come back and I didn't mean to, to get ahead on the uh, the defined uh, benefits. We, we'll come back and circle around at that at the end. I just wanted to maybe emphasize that 401k falls under the category of a defined um, define contribution plan. Just so if somebody hears that, that term. There. So let's, um, let's start this exercise. Then let's say I come to you guys and say, Jeff and Sean, my practice is humming along. Um, you know, I, I feel good financially. Our cash flows are strong. Um, we've got some money left over. I'm interested in setting up a 401k to start doing a little bit of retirement planning. Um, what are the steps I take? What team members do I need to put together? Like, I don't even know where to start. Like, what uh, what 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 kind of discussions and what sort of structuring do we need to do to start setting this up? Because I don't know how to do it. Where, where do we start there? Sure. So everyone's going to need what's called a third party administrator. Essentially, it's like the accountant for your retirement plan is probably the best way to think of them. And uh, they can be independent firms. Uh, you're also going to need what's called a record keeper. A record keeper is that firm where the money is held. They custody. They offer the portal for uh, contributions for your employees to log in. It's where the investment options are provided. We can talk a little bit more about record keepers in uh, in a little bit here, but your third party administrator can be independent or it can be part of the record keeping program. You know, you can go to one place and get it all. We kind of favor the independent third party administrator we find with smaller dental practices. You don't have an HR person on staff uh, sometimes maybe you are doing a lot of management and it's not really in your wheelhouse or your, and by having a third party administrator, it's independent. You tend to get a little more handholding. And, uh, and, and particularly if you're growing, you're going to do other locations. Sometimes you have that same person to go back to. Uh, they tend to be maybe a little bit higher end. So, but you, but the third party administrator is required. Now, what we would do is a plan study. So you say, all right, I want to do a 401k. So you're going to have a study run. First, we're going to get a census. And and so the census is going to be a listing of everybody on staff, uh, get their names, get their dates of birth. Dates of birth are important because with one of the contribution pieces, it might be adjusted for age. So we need dates of birth, date of hire, and uh, uh, hours worked in, in salary. All of those pieces are important for eligibility reasons, for contribution reasons. We get the census back. We go to the third party administrator and then they will look at everything and create the study based on the plan design that may make the most sense for your practice and what you want to achieve. So you start there. Okay. now some of the decisions you have to make. And you know what? Maybe this is a good time just to explain the three contributions that make up a 401k because that goes into the plan design then, okay? So the first piece is the deferral that we talked about. That's the amount that even you as the owner doc take out of your salary. And we can only base contributions on on salary, by the way, W-2 salary. If you're not incorporated, then you can use your general business income, uh, you know, net business income. But if you're incorporated, LLC filing as a corp, uh, you know, as an S-corp, you have Mm -hmm. to use W-2 income. 
Um, So that salary deferral, it's the maximum this year is 20,500 is the deferral. If you're age 50 or older, it's an additional 6,500 catch up. So it'd be $27,000. Take that out of your pocket. Now, 401ks can be traditional, but the problem with the regular old 401k plan is you have to meet really strict testing that looks at what the highly compensated people in the plan get versus the rank and file employees. And a dental practice is always going to fail that test. So if you have just a straight traditional plan, you won't be able to do your deferral contribution in. You may have some people listening that are at DSOs that they get some of their contribution kicked back. And the reason is it's a traditional plan and there's not enough of the assistance and hygienists putting money in. And so all the highly paid docs get some of their contribution kicked back. So there's a special plan we use in dental practice. It's called a safe harbor plan. So you may have heard, you know, safe harbor. The second contribution is the safe harbor contribution. And you have to give the staff one of two. You either give them a 3%, we call this a non-elective, 3% of their salary, even if they don't contribute. But if they do contribute, you don't worry about what they contribute. You just give them a 3% contribution of salary, anybody who's eligible. The second option is what's called a safe harbor match. And in this situation, you only give a safe harbor contribution to an employee who actually contributes to the plan themselves. And you match them dollar for dollar up to the first 3% of their comp and then 50 cents on the dollar up to a total of 5% of comp. So if you have a staff member that puts 5% of their income in, you give them 4% is how the math works out. Okay. Okay? Now, if you do one of those two contributions, you don't have to meet the testing. So almost every plan you're going to set up in a dental office is going to be a safe harbor plan. Um, One note, you have to make a decision on which of those formulas you use when you install the plan. You can't toggle back and forth between them on a year-by-year basis. If you wanted to change it, you could, but you'd have to amend the plan. There's a certain time of year you can do that. You're going to pay probably a little admin charge to do it. But when you set the plan up, you make your decision on which one you would use. And I would say, Jeff, one thing I would say is whenever we're doing the plan study, we're going to show um, prospective costs for that safe harbor contribution for the employer if you just did the 3%. Versus if you did the matched, if your employees deferred right. the most or that they could, right? So that way you can make that decision. Do, do I want to just give them a 3%? I think it's like a bonus every year, regardless yeah. if they save the money or not. Mm-hmm. Or do I only want to contribute to their accounts if they save their own money? Like, do I only want to match? Um, so you can make that decision. And that's all in the plan document when you first set it up. And, and part of our job is to walk you through that um, and help you understand the implications of picking one over the other. Yeah, and, and like Sean said, you know, some, some people might look and say, hey, I'm going to give them 3%. I'm going to treat it like a bonus, and uh, it's more tax efficient for me to do that. You know, that's fine. Some will say, hey, I, I don't mind giving it to them. If they put money in, they have skin in the game. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there. It's, it's really, a lot of it's going to depend on your practice. We can do the math on it too. One might be, you know, less expensive than the other depending on what you think people will put in, uh, you know, we can, but that, that becomes a case by case decision essentially. So then the, th- so you got the deferral, you've got the safe Harbor. So again, if you are the owner and you're the doc and you get your 20,500 in, and let's say you have a safe Harbor match and you're salaring, you know, around 300,000. So you're getting like 12,000 in, so you have to, to get to the 61,000 cap, you know, the max, you're not there yet. So the third contribution is what we call profit sharing. And that's the amount you put in to get you to the, to, to the maximum available, all right? Now, what you have to do is you have to give staff, whether they contributed or not, doesn't matter which safe harbor you have, you have to give them a contribution as well that's somewhat proportionate to what you get. So if you're getting, you know, 10% of your income, theirs is going to be probably in the 10%, eight to eight to 10% range. So there's two formulas for the profit sharing. One is called integrated, and that's the basic starting formula uh, that most people starting will use. Then there's also what's called new comparability. You also hear 
cross-tested. There's a couple of names for it, but it's essentially a formula that you can take into account age and to some extent occupational class. And you can maybe give someone who's older a bigger contribution, someone who's younger a smaller one. It kind of works off the theory that someone who is older has less time to accumulate so they can get a bigger contribution. Someone that's younger, they get the, you know, they're saying maybe someone who's 29 is getting a contribution that's smaller than someone who's 39, but it's the equivalent because of the time differential that they have to earn. So the new comparability typically starts working depending on the age of your employees, you know, in your late 30s, we might see it work if you have a really young staff. If your staff is a bit older, you might, it might be until your 40s to that work. And that's something you start with one maybe and then go to the other uh, along the way, you know, as you, as you get older. I would say as the advisor, part of the consultation is to bring these things up and, and encourage you to have it retested with your third party administrator. Should be looking at it every year. And looking at it every year. Yep. So, yep. so, so, so let's say you've, okay, we've run the numbers, we've done the plan study, and we've decided you're going to do uh, the, you know, the, the safe harbor match. And we know you're going to, and by the way, the profit sharing is discretionary. You don't have to do it. You can do some of it. You can do all of it. You can decide year by year if you want to do it or not. The only contribution you have to make is that safe harbor, be it a match or 3%. Okay. But the profit, I mean, I've had some people say this year, you know, I'm only, you know, how much I'm only going to put half in. Well, that also reduces what you have to put in for the staff too. So it's, again, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be uh, based on the percent that you're, getting on that. There's also a vesting schedule on the on, on the profit sharing. Yep. The uh, the safe harbor, if an employee leaves, whatever you gave them, they take it with them uh, right away. If they put money in, it's their money, they can walk away with it. With the profit sharing, they vest in the profit sharing over six years. So what this means is in the first year that they get a contribution, if they leave, they don't get any of it. The next year that earned 20% of the profit sharing that is in their account. The year after that, it's 40%. After six years, if they left you, they'll, you know, they'll walk away with all of it. So what happens to that money that's left? Well, you can do a couple things. You can use it to offset your contribution. You could apply it to plan expenses. But what most people do is this third option, and that's it's kicked back into the plan in proportion to size of accounts. So you're gonna have the biggest account, right? If there's four features from vesting, it's broken up, you're gonna get most of it. So again, we may look and say, profit sharing from a tax standpoint is kind of a wash, but chances are you're gonna have some turnover and you're probably gonna get some of that come back to you anyways. So, right. so, um, so yeah, uh, question, yeah, something now what, feedback on too, like, cause, all these listeners are going to listen right now and say, oh my God, this sounds so complex. Like I've got staff that comes and goes or a one K in place, but it's like, man, I don't have time once a week to start doing all these calculations to figure out how much do I need to put in and what's their percentage profit sharing. And it can seem really overwhelming, but, uh, um, like, I don't know how to ask this as a question, you, but I guess it's not like you need to sit down as the practice owner and calculate all these things. I just want to emphasize that's a third party administrator's job at the end of the year. Really, the only thing you need to do as the practice owner is every time you run payroll, you've got your, um, you know, your deferral amounts for your employees. This, you know, employee um, Sally Smith wants three percent out. Sally Jones wants five percent out, and you just take that out that you take their deferral out and you put it into your, um, your 401k investment account through Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard or whatever. And that's all you need to do. And the third party administrator at the end of the year calculates all the profit sharing, calculates everything else you need to put in. And that's all done for you at the end of the year. So I wanted maybe just for us to emphasize that so that we don't overwhelm people that you have to do all this fancy math. Yeah, that's a great thing. So, so if you think about it, Casey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to set your plan up. This is what your third party administrator does. First of all, they create your plan document. It's going to cost you money up front for that one time. And then they're going to, exactly, your plan's going to get installed. Your advisor should be working with your third-party administrator to get you coordinated. If you have a payroll company, they can make the contributions for you. Some third-party administrators uh, will do the contributions. Ours would, for instance, on that. Uh, the... Uh, uh, you get that set up and going, the profit sharing, and, and actually you can make the safe harbor throughout the year. Payroll can do that too, or you can set it up to be done. 
But the profit sharing at the end of the year, they get data from your, your practice. They calculate it. We would look at it with you and say, yeah, it makes sense. You'll talk to your account. It looks good or doesn't look good. Let's not do it this year. And then it's just a lump sum into the into the plan at that time. It's complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces underneath. But if you're working with good people, they can make it simple for you. They, they can make it streamlined and turnkey. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's kind of what I uh, I wanted to emphasize there. Um, if uh, something I might piggyback on there too, I do my own payroll. I know most a lot of people um, have somebody else do their payroll, and that can be a little daunting setting that up. But um, it's really if you yeah. are the type of listener that does your own payroll, um, like QuickBooks Online or was it Gusto or uh, on, online payroll company, really it's as simple as when you run that payroll and you have all their uh, deferrals set up, you just go back and look and you ca- you tally up, you know, employee A, uh, their three percent, you know, it'll, your software will tell you that's thirty four dollars and ten cents, and then employee B, it's fifty six dollars. Then you get to yourself, like Casey gets as the W two employee. I think mine, I split up my two thousand five hundred dollar, you know, max deferral amount. I split that between all twenty six biweekly paycheck. So it's like, I think every paycheck is mm-hmm. 950 bucks or whatever. So you tally all that up. It's about, you know, maybe 1100 bucks that pay period. I, um, then after you finish running payroll, I just hop on Charles Schwab and I just move money from a practice bank account to the, um, to the 401k account, which you can kind of see. And a lot of times the advisors have access to, and then you just have to move that money over within, correct me if I'm wrong, like a certain, there's, you just have to make sure you take all your employees money that they're deferring and you just move it to that account within a certain period of time. So you don't get penalized. And then that's really all I do on, it takes me five minutes on a, on a, whenever I run payroll. So if you're the type of person that does it yourself, as long as you do it at the time you run payroll, it ends up not being a huge deal for the deferrals. Yeah. And actually uh, with some of those payroll companies you named Gusto's one, I know it's a, it's a real growing popular one. Uh, A lot of those link with the record keepers. Now they actually sync. So it can be rather seamless. You can you know, click the button and it's all done uh, uh, at one shot. And you're right. The, making the contributions on time, that's probably the biggest thing Department of Labor looks for in audits. Now, you can mess it up. It happens. You know, don't don't freak if it happens. You can fix it. But if it was a, what they don't want you is using the employee's money as a float. Right. So, you know, they want it in within seven days. Uh, and that's the other reason, you know, you work with a good third party administrator. You're going to make a mistake somewhere. You know, it's not life ending. It's, you're not going to lose the plan or pay massive penalties. They'll catch it. They'll fix it. You know, so, you know, don't don't be intimidated by by it. We can again, good people can make this uh, simplified for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, another t- question I had for you that I wanted to touch on was there's different ways to set up these plans that I've discovered where um, it's not every 401k plan is structured the same for your employees as far as access to their accounts and investments. Like my wife, for example, works for a large hospital. Her 401k is really complex. Like she can log on to her account. She can select her own investments. She can say, I want to have all my 401k money in um, like a small cap growth companies, or I want it all in bonds. And she can Mm -hmm. constantly check the value of it. But I've kind of learned, and you can speak to this, you know, that that can be kind of really expensive for a small practice to start up a small dental office. So the way at least mine is structured was, is more so where the employees just, you know, they, they can see in their paycheck how much money got taken out. And at the very end of the year, they get a statement of this is how much money is in, is, you know, I guess is your proportion, you know, this is in your piggy bank from the 401k. This is the part amount that's yours, but they don't really get to check or have any say in the investments. That's the plans fiduciary, which is another role, like setting up all the investments. Um, but, but mm-hmm. it's a cheap way to do that. So I don't know if I explained that right, but I wanted to touch on that, that you can structure yeah, it. You did. So you're using a pool account, which, which honestly, we don't see that much anymore. It was the way to do it when profit sharing plans were run. One of the issues you have, it, it could be kind of it, problematic because if, if employees, you know, putting money in throughout the year, you've got to track, if one were to leave partway through the year, you got to figure out what their balance is on a daily valuation. So it's, it, that can be a little problematic. And there is a fiduciary issue because if you're investing their money, the problem you have is what if you have someone who's 55 years old and you're 35 years old, you want, you know, probably a growth investment, right? Well, they don't want that. So if their account goes down, theoretically, if you're running a pulled account, you have to meet the prudent man rule. 
which essentially says you have to invest for the entire demographics. So if you have some older people, you're, you might have to have a 60-40 portfolio. Well, you may be saying, that doesn't really benefit me. I need more return because I'm young. And uh, so what we typically do see are the record-keeping platforms. And there are, if, there are affordable ones out there for startups. You know, we, we, we do a lot of startup plans, and there are ones that are fairly reasonable priced. And as you grow, it doesn't take a lot of assets to get reasonable uh, pricing. You get maybe half a million or so. Then, you, then the whole world opens up to a lot of different record keepers. We find employees like that. They want to make their decisions. Uh, you get less questions. Uh, you don't have spouses. If you're going to have, I, I can tell you, we get called by spouse. We can't talk to them, but we get called by spouses and all that. Sometimes having that separate, you can manage how you want. You, and you can have some control over what funds come in. So if you have what's called an open architecture platform, you can populate the fund menu with uh, all types of funds, you know, almost almost unlimited funds available. Uh, you can have, uh, there's some managed portfolio options if you want to offer to employees where they actually would have like model portfolios and all that. We use target dates and target risk funds. So uh, you can make it affordable uh, for, uh, you know, for a startup, okay. uh, even at, you know, $0 going in the start. Yeah. Maybe, uh, and maybe the reason that I guess myself and my team went that route is all my employees are probably within a few years of my same age. It's, we're all very young practice. And so yeah. maybe it was a cost saving measure there, but, uh, and I don't know if this relates to the yeah. plans. was like from the fiduciary standpoint, that's something that I wasn't real familiar with was, um, you know, plans tend to have, uh, again, correct me if I mess this up anywhere, but plans tend to have, you know, you want to have a fiduciary, you want to have somebody overseeing this account from the fiduciary money management standpoint, because there's a liability issue there where if I'm the type of guy that likes to do right. everything myself and I set up this fund and I go in and I say, okay, um, of all this big pooled money we have in this account, um, on my Schwab account, we're going to put this much in an international, we're going to put this much here. I'm going to put this much in GameStop. You can, and then you know, something tanks, you're legally liable because you're investing other people's money. So yeah. there's a reality there where you want a third, uh, not, um, you want a fiduciary or somebody, an outside party to be, um, managing that. Um, and so this is not the kind of thing where you want to be a do it yourself or as much as you want to be. So, um, I don't know if there's anything you can add to that, but that was something yeah. I learned the way too. Yeah. I think the one thing to take away is just where little people, it's a little bit misunderstood. You, you, as a plan sponsor, you never are 100% relieved of your fiduciary responsibility, but you can help pass on some of that by using advisors. Uh, you know, obviously, you bring a team in to manage. You know, you're the one that chose them, but at the same time, you've got recourse against them if they do something wrong. So, uh, but it is important. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are working on commission, and they're not fiduciaries. Uh, they the only standard they have to meet is, is this suitable? So it's kind of like, it's okay. You know, it's not okay to sell a little old lady, a, you know, emerging market mutual fund. Uh, but it's okay to, you know, to give them a really bad bond fund, <laughs> you know? So, but a, a fiduciary has to I mean, not only ask, is this right for you, but is, are the investment recommendations correct? Are we looking at We have to look at fees. We have to look at the structure and the ages of the staff and everything. And uh, when you when you bypass that to us, uh, you know you're paying us. We're not being paid by a, a fund or a 401k platform. You know, there's no there's no compensation either direct or indirect from anyone but you. So your best interest is as a fiduciary. We have to have your best interest uh, at all times. But I would say that that's a question to ask when you're setting this up. Sure. Any advisor you plan to work with, are they set up as a fiduciary? Because not not all are yeah as it's uh i would say probably very few are another one is is you know jeff's going on about the plans and, and his knowledge and how complicated it can be you know there's been all kinds of studies done about um the average advisor how many retirement plans they handle you know it's so much easier to handle an individual investment account than to take care of all these roles the average advisor maybe has one plan in their entire portfolio um you know we deal with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them and we are laser focused in dentistry. So you want to ask those questions. Are you a fiduciary? Are you really familiar yeah. with, with helping me <laughs> help me do this plan? Because most advisors, they don't want to do them. 
And if they do them, they maybe only handle one or two. And that's like going to, you know, a dental specialist that only does a procedure once or twice a year. You probably get a better treatment plan if they did it every day. Right. Um, so uh, on that topic, this was a quick hitter one. Um, something I learned, I don't know if this applies for all 401k plans, but I got caught by surprise that I can't even remember the name of the type of insurance, but there's a bond that I found out almost <laughs> like insurance plan. You got to yeah. have, I got hit, I got hit with last minute and was like, Oh shit, I got to go run back and grab this. So, um, maybe <laughs> like, yeah, the old Russell bond. If you're going to set that up, like explain that real quick and just make sure listeners know if they set up a 401k, it's something you got to, you can talk to your insurance person and get real quick. Yeah, it's required. So the Department of Labor and the IRS oversee required uh, retirement plans. They require you to, so a bond is basically an insurance, a fidelity bond or a RISA bond, same thing. Uh, it's an insurance contract that will reimburse the plan against theft, basically. So if you have, let's say, an office manager is able to get into it and absconds with $50,000 of your $100,000 in the plan, the bond is going to replace that. It's required to have, it's really cheap. Uh, I, I, you know, what is it, Sean? He knows a little bit. hundred bucks. Yeah. Is, you get it like once every three years. It's yeah. Really it, just kind of a, it's not a big deal. Just if you don't have it, that could be a problem. It could be an audit risk, actually. So you have to have, your bond has to be, equal to 10% of your plan assets at year end to a cap of half a million dollars. So once you have a half a million dollars in bond, you can have a hundred million in the plan, 500,000 is all you need. So, but you have to have it. Uh, it will, uh, like I said, you pay a premium, it'll last three years and you have to renew it. And if you, you know, people ask, well, you know, my plan assets change all the time. Well, you buy it and the, what the bond does, it, it's guaranteed to go to whatever levels needed over that three-year period. So you don't have to worry about it. But if you don't have it, th there's a box that has to be checked on the on the form that's filed with the IRS each year. And if you don't have it checked, my understanding is it's one of those things when it runs through the system, it could flag for an audit. So you definitely want to have one. In addition to it being required, uh, it's not going to flag you either. So. Okay. Um, uh, the, the only other quick hitter I had before we maybe finish out with the, um, defined, uh, contra defined benefit plan was, um, like as far as a cost yeah. of a, of administering a 401k, um, you know, if, if somebody asks mm -hmm. what is going to cost me or, you know, say you've done the math and, and okay, I can put 60 grand away as a practice owner and these are my employees and I'm actually going to save this amount of money, um, in, in tax costs and you do all that math and it makes sense year over year after that, what is it going to cost me to actually administer this plan outside of some of my time? You know, the, there's a third party administrator fee and then maybe like a percent commission on the event. Like just what, what do you tell somebody this is what to expect from a cost standpoint every year? You know, a TPA fee, so that's, you know, third party administrator fee, you know, you're going to probably pay up to a grand in the first year for setup. That's for your plan document. That's a one-time fee. And then your annual fee is probably going to run in the range of $2,000 to $2,500 a year mm. for the admin. If you're doing the new comparability profit sharing, it's usually closer to that $2,500 because they have to spend more time calculating it. I'm going to say $1,500 to $2,500. You know, if they're doing contributions, it's probably going to be in the two to $2,200 range. But, you know, very affordable. It's all tax deductible, too. And there is a tax credit available. I believe it's $500 a year for three years for a first time plan. So when you set up a plan, you get this tax credit. And a tax credit, remember, is a dollar for dollar reduction in your tax. And so essentially it covers the startup cost of, of the plan basically uh, over a period of a couple of years. Uh, so, you know, I think it's pretty affordable uh, to do. Uh, I mean, you again, ta I mean, after tax, you guys are gonna be in a 40% tax bracket. You know, it, that's, that's to me worth every penny to get the tax benefits on that. Uh, the cost of the you know, investment uh, management you know, with an advisor might be half a percent to three quarters of a percent. It's gonna go down as the assets go up, of course, too, so. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I would say, you know, a, a lean startup when you're talking, working with an advisor, what, Jeff, one and a half percent? And all Probably in, all in with the All in, yeah. like for your funds, for your record keeper, for your advisor. And then, of course, um, as time goes on, it should be, this is something we probably need to talk about really quickly. You know, the advisor should be benchmarking it for you yeah, and showing you, hey, we have all kinds of studies about plans that are your size, that have your type of platform, 
right? number of employees, number of employees, yeah. and what the average national costs are, high, medium, low, and where you fit, so that you can look at that and say, okay, well, am I within the reasonable range of what the cost should be for a plant of my size and a and a, and a uh, you know in a business of my size? That should be transparent. You know, one of the things that we really want to stress is is transparency and making sure things are straightforward when it comes to fees. Right. And that's something that we do for all of our plans is, it, one, we're doing that full review, but we're also doing uh, reviews of, uh, we, we typically work with open architecture plans where every employee can log in and see and pick their own their own uh, investment options. And you as, as the plan sponsor can pick from almost any investment option out there. So open architecture, but we have to go and then measure those funds to make sure that they're good funds within their sector. So that kind of watchdogging in, in concert with the fee review should be yeah. happening on a yearly basis. Right. Do that every year. Cool. Um, it, uh, should we go any, to the defined benefit plan? I was going to say, if we didn't miss anything else, I thought we'd maybe finish up just hitting a few highlights on defined benefit plan, if that sounds okay. Um, yeah, so, so defined benefit plan, cash balance. Yeah, go ahead. Did you want to maybe stage it there, Casey? Uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll I'll tee it up for you so you can you can knock this one out. Uh, let's say um, I've actually kind of had thought a few times. Let's say you're really crushing it. You've got a startup and you've got your 401k going, um, and you're putting away a bunch of money, and the practice is cruising, and you just have all this money left over, and you're putting you know you've maxed out your backdoor Roths. Maybe you got your student loans down. You've been practicing for five, maybe closer to ten years, and you just have a lot of money left over. Maybe you're putting a hundred, couple hundred grand away in an after tax brokerage account. And you say, okay, I'd like to be able to make sure I'm maximizing tax advantage accounts when I can. Is the defined, um, defined benefit plan right for me? And I know age kind of comes into a factor because um, it's something I've kind of looked at before with having some extra cash on hand. But my impression is age age really mm -hmm. comes into a factor and like the age of your staff and the age of the doctor. So somebody comes, comes into you and is in a really strong cash position, how do you start that conversation as a def defined benefit plan right for me? Well, you just nailed it right there. Number one question is, do you have cash flow? Because it is a cash flow intensive. It's not a plan that is flexible like the profit sharing in a 401k. Once you commit to it, you have to be into a cash balance plan for about four years. If you were to end it before that and there wasn't a viable economic reason, you could get audited. They could come back and, you know, the, the IRS could go back and disqualify it. So uh, you, you have to commit to it, which means you need, you need the cash flow and it needs to be consistent. Uh, but if you have that, uh, it is a big tax saver. So the calculation is done by an actuary. The cost is going to be a bit higher. It's, it could be maybe three to four grand to, to do the administration each year because the actuary has to go through and calculate a contribution for each employee. So again, what we're looking at is saying, if you're the doc, we want to max out your contribution. We're basically funding for an income stream starting at 65 or 62, whatever you're going to pick as your retirement age. You're funding for a $230,000 payout for life. So what you're doing is reverse engineering that and saying, how much money do we need in your account, Mr. Uh, Pediatric Dentist, for you to be able to split out, you know, spit out 230,000 from that. So you're funding for a balance, basically. It's about $3 million right now. And then this staff, now the staff, we're not funding for 230 of income, right? You know, we're funding for a small piece of their income and you're adding social security into this, by the way. So social security is going to make up a ton of their income. So you go, so the actuary goes through and says, for you, you get 120,000 or 80,000 or whatever it might be contribution for your staffers, they may get a thousand or 500. And actually in some cases, the 401k eats up enough of their contribution. You don't have to give them anything. So uh, it, it can be a really, really uh, strong plan because that's all tax deductible money. You know, if you can get 150,000 in between the 401k and the cash balance, uh, and then that's probably at an older age, at, at a younger age, you wouldn't get that much in. But that's huge tax savings for you. And even at the higher admin cost, it's, it's going to way outweigh your cost. Um, and the one key is this. If you're, again, it's very age-weighted. If you have a lot of older employees, it may not work. Even if you have the cash flow, it just may not spreadsheet well because the amount you have to give the staff would eat up the tax savings. But if you have a decent spread 
between uh, you and your staff. It could start working by maybe age 36 to 37. We've seen it work maybe even as young as 35 in some cases. Uh, one of the hints are this. If you look in your, you can do the new comparability for the profit sharing. That's a good indication that you're able to do the defined benefit plan, the cash balance plan as well. So that's the first thing. If we see that, we go, what's your cash flow? Let's take a look at this. It'll make sense uh, to do. And uh, now that is a pulled account. That's an invested account. Uh, the staff doesn't log in. They don't get to pick their funds. This is an account. And, and by the way, you are funding for an investment return of about five, four to five percent, depending on how the plan's set up. Uh, you're not trying to shoot the moon with your investments here because you're funding for an ending balance and they're using an assumed rate of return of four to five percent. That's that's mandated to some extent by the IRS. There's only a there's a cap that you can use in determining the uh, the investment return. So you want a portfolio that's going to approximate that return. Okay. If you get too much return, you're going to lower what you get to put into it. You're going to lose the tax savings. You get too little return, you may have to owe money uh, to it. So it's something you want to be kind of right down the middle with. Right. The yeah. One thing I'd say about all this stuff, like. No matter what your situation is, get a get a census together and explore your options. Because sure. you know, I'm always really amazed by what the third party administrators come back with. Like, you might have someone that has a safe harbor 401k, you know, a defined contribution plan, and it's borderline making sense from a from a tax deduction versus contribution perspective. Mm-hmm. But when they lay over the defined benefit plan. They rebalance it and somehow it cooks better. Right? Yeah, they can cook it a different way. It's probably the best way to put it. It's the best way I can say it. So you now you see the spreadsheet that the dynamics have totally changed because they put a defined benefit on top. So if you're sitting there and saying, I do have the cash flow, but you know what? The, my 401k is pretty costly in contributions as it is. I know it's not going to work. That's a poor assumption because they may be able to overlay that defined benefit and give you some relief and have it all work out better by having the two combined. Yeah, sometimes more goes to the cash balance, less to the 401k. There's different ways you can spread it. By the way, anybody who's an independent contractor can do this as well. We have uh, uh, almost any independent contractor who's sort of a long-term, I have some, you know, that's how they're set up. That's that's how their career is going to be. Boy, it works great with a solo K, uh, you know, because you don't have to worry about staff or anything. So you can do it as well. Yeah, so that's my, my ending takeaway. Test, test, test. You know, reach out to us. We'll crunch the numbers yep. or, you know, any whoever your advisor is. Um, and, you know, you may be surprised what you have available to you. And also, it's like anything else. Revisit it on a yearly or, or every other year basis, because as your plan grows and as your demographics change, you may be missing opportunities. Yeah. Um, and a really astute advisor that has a network of third party administrators and that, that they really have vetted out can bring the best of class to you to make sure that this is being evaluated and put you in the best position possible. Okay. Can I, can I, I have a couple real quick power questions, just like quick hitters related to the defined benefits plan that I'm thinking of and listeners might be thinking of. One is, yeah, one, I guess is, uh, so is, is a big concern on a, on a defined benefit plan that what happens if let's say uh, a pediatric dentist set one up last year and then we have a 2022 and this big correction in the market's tanking. That's kind of the downside. You've got to put in a lot extra money on those harder years to get the plan up to where it's supposed to be, right? No, actually, there's a seven-year amortization window that it could grow back into it. So that's the key. You do not have. You don't have to freak out going, "Oh my gosh, I'm down ten. I needed five, but I'm down ten, Right? No, you can allow it to grow back. So that's it's not something you have to make up that year. Yeah, it's not that severe. I think the point is is that when we're setting up the investment portfolio, we're picking one that has a certain risk tolerance that provides a a more consistent growth and not the variables. Like if that happened a lot, or if you had a lot of ups and downs, eventually it's going to catch up to you. But it's not totally sensitive. Remember this, you're funding for a benefit. You get that benefit whether you got 20% return or a 5% return, you just get it sooner if you get a 20% return and you can't, you stop funding it. You're not going to make more by earning more. So getting more risky, it doesn't get you anywhere, but it could cause you to be underfunded for a longer period of time that at some point might come up 
and catch. I've run into some plans that were very aggressively managed and over a period of time, they didn't have a time to grow back and, and they had to put more in. So, you know, kind of keeping it, uh, you know, aligned with the return assumption is the best way to go. But you don't have to make the contribution up right away. Okay. Uh, second question would be, let's say, um, you know, there's been a, I'm kind of into it, but this fire movement where financial independence retire early, if mm -hmm. you are fortunate enough to be in the position where you got your debts paid down and you maybe don't want to practice into your sixties, um, you maybe want to retire early in your, in your mid fifties or something say, is it possible that because of that restriction, a defined benefit plan may never make sense as an option where you may just have to put that extra money, you know, max out 401k. Like is, is that factor in, and if you want an early retirement age, how does affect that affect the ability to do a defined benefit plan? I think as long as you have the four years in, and honestly, you know, if you shut the, if you shut, if you close your practice, that would be an economic reason you couldn't fund it, right? You know, so uh, I, I don't know that would necessarily be an issue. That's probably a better question for the uh, cash balance plan, uh, third party administrator. Right. Once you've funded it for four years, if you're, I mean, that would not be a problem at all. And realistically, what you're gonna do when you shut it down, nobody takes the income stream. You're gonna roll it over to an IRA at retirement or when you close it, and then you're gonna manage it and distribute it as you want, basically, at that point in time. But Jeff, a question I have, let's say that you're trying to retire at 55. Mm -hmm. And they just heavily funded the fine contribution, the fine benefit to the point that they can't invest outside. Mm -hmm. What do they do for money at age fifty-six? Well, you can draw. You can. What people don't realize there are ways to draw money from an IRA or retirement plan. Uh, you have to take it over a ten-year period, but you can start at fifty-five. Actually, as long as you take an actuarial amount out that's calculated, there's a there's a rule for that seventy-two T. So. Uh, but, you know, that becomes an issue, obviously, if you have outside assets, you sell your practice, maybe the practice sale is what provides the funding for the, the gap period. I'm going to guess, though, if you funded your cash balance, you probably have the ability to have other funding somewhere else as well. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and that's funny. That's, that was literally my last question was, I don't know the answer to this is what happens if you've got, whether it be a, a 401k traditional profit sharing safe Harbor, or you've got the defined benefit plan, what happens if you sell your practice to another dentist or a corporate or something? I guess I don't really know what happens to that account, you know, cause at that point it's a pile of money sitting in a Schwab account or something. Do you just distribute the money to the, all the employees and the new, uh, the new practice owner has to start over? What, what are the options of what happens to that money upon yours? Yeah. Typically because most practice sales are asset sales uh, and not stock sales, so you're, you're not buying the stock of the practice, you're buying the assets and the goodwill, right? So typically what you do is the plan gets shut down. And then the options are, what you're going to do as a doc is you're going to, you can, you know, if you go to, let's so say you go buy a DSO or you, you guys, you know, a, a, another practice bought you out and you're going to work there. You can roll your money over to that 401k out of the old 401k that you had. You can roll it to an IRA if you want. Your staff can roll it to the new plan if they're absorbed by the new practice or the new owner, or they can roll it to an IRA. They could take it in cash, but they're going to get taxed and penalized. So that's the worst option for them to do. You know, when we see that happen, we try to encourage the staff. We, we, we really try to encourage the staff to roll it to the 401k. That's probably the best thing. Uh, and then the docs can do what they want with it. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was that was my concern was, man, do I have to keep managing this even when I'm retired and trying to be hunting all day and I've got to be in the tree stand trying to figure yeah, out how to keep rolling? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You know, Casey, let's say you're in a let's say you end up with multiple partners and you just retire, they buy you out, but your your 401k is still there. At that point, you would just roll your money out into an IRA. You can leave it in there if you want, but you'd probably want to roll it to an IRA, have your own management of it and take it out uh, as you see fit then. Okay. Yeah. That answers that, that, uh, perfectly guys. I'm sorry. I, I know I, I stimulated all these new questions that I hadn't even thought about, but I think I finally got through it all. I think we, uh, we did a really nice job being really thorough with this. So, I mean, obviously you could dive even deeper into it, but I feel like this was a really good, you know, um, pension planning 101 or, you know, retirement planning, 401k planning 101 conversation. Yeah. So I appreciate you guys being so thorough and going over this stuff. I think this is a really good episode. It was cool. We appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I know there's a lot of complexity here, but if you work with the right people, as I said before, they can make it, you know, understandable. 
Uh, you know, I guess I kind of look at it this way. You want to know what's going on right, but you're also paying people to know what they're doing and uh, do it right. I think the key is knowing the questions and uh, having a you know, little bit of grasp. And, uh, but there's great opportunities out there for anybody owning a practice with uh, retirement plans available. Yeah. So Jeff, just because uh, obviously you're a super knowledgeable guy on this and like you had answers to all my questions right off the bat, if somebody's interested in maybe setting up a 401k and, and needing somebody to walk them through the process, is there a, a good way to get in touch with you or somebody at Treeler Heisel or something to help them uh, initiate that process? Yeah. What's the place to start? Yeah, they can contact, uh, uh, they can contact me at uh, Treelor and Heisel here. If they're working with one of our Field advisors, even with their disability or life insurance, they can get in touch with them. They'll bring them in. We have a 401k team here at Trelor, and uh, we have our own, uh, you know, staff dedicated specifically to 401k areas. So more than happy to to, to answer any questions or uh, talk to anybody who might be interested in seeing what opportunities they might have in their practice. You hop on our website www.trelor.t.r.e.l.o.a.r. Dot com or give us a call 800-345-6040 and you know we'll get back to you within 24 hours and be happy to, to assist you we appreciate the opportunity cool fellas i appreciate the the time great conversation and uh uh i look forward to, to doing it again sometime because i could talk about this stuff all day long so i appreciate your time and um and uh, coming on and chatting with you too yeah this was fun casey thank you Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host, Casey Getz, on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.